0: Greetings to all of you listening to this message from God. My name is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. For those of you that are new, I just want to inform you that what I'm about to share, I seek to share out of the Spirit of God to you. Seeking not to speak my own words, but the words that the Spirit of God would speak to you who in God's foreknowledge has come to hear this message and also to the corporate body of Christ for this particular time in the last days. As such, I will seek always to be led to the chapter that I believe God is wanting me to share from, from the Word of God. I therefore cast lots before God, knowing the power and sovereignty of God to work, and bring me to the right chapter. This is not a game, and if people treat it as a game, and if their life is not walking in holiness and purity before God, this will not work. But I want you to know that I spend about a half an hour on whatever chapter I'm led to each day in reading it, meditating on it, and making notes on it within that half hour, and then I immediately thereafter, as I am right now, begin to preach a message to you, not really knowing much of what I'm going to share except for the brief notes within that mere half hour. This allows the Holy Spirit to work and speak far more instead of having one's own set agenda through notes. In fact, it says in 2 Peter, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. And that's what I will therefore seek to do, is to speak out of the spirit of prophecy, which is to speak out of a consciousness of worship and relationship with God that allows the Spirit of God to rise up within one's being and to flow forth in his words. None of us are perfect in allowing that to fully override sometimes our own tendencies. And so my prayer today is that God will teach me as I am teaching you while I am speaking, as I've often experienced. Revelation immediately coming to me of things I've never thought or considered before, or seen before, so that I am also being taught while I'm sharing with you. And the Lord commanded us to pray that the Spirit of truth would lead us into all truth. And so that is my prayer today that you would be led into the truth. For it is the knowledge of the truth that brings one into genuine liberty and abundance of life. Today I received a psalm that I've already received twice this year. Once back in the summer and once back on October the 2nd, and that's Psalm 145. So I will read this psalm, which is not a long psalm, nor is it a very short one. It's about a little more on the short side. And then after reading it, I want to share with you whatever the Holy Spirit would be saying to you as an individual and also to the corporate body of Christ and whoever else would come within the sound of this message. First reading, Psalm 145. David's psalm of praise. I will extol thee, my God, O King and I will bless thy name for ever and ever. Every day will I bless thee, and I will praise thy name for ever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise thy works to another, and shall declare thy mighty acts. I will speak of the glorious honor of thy majesty, And of thy wondrous works. And man shall speak of the might of thy terrible acts. And I will declare thy greatness. They shall abundantly utter the memory of thy great goodness. And shall sing of thy righteousness. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. Slow to anger and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. All thy works shall praise thee, O Lord, and thy saints shall bless thee. They shall speak of the glory of thy kingdom and talk of thy power. To make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. The Lord upholdeth all that fall, and raiseth up all those that be bowed down. The eyes of all wait upon thee, and thou givest them their meat in due season. Thou openest thy hand, and satisfiest the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, and holy in all his works. The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth and will fulfill the desire of them that fear him. He also will hear their cry, and will save them. The Lord preserveth all them that love him, but all the wicked will he destroy. My mouth shall speak of the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless his holy name for ever and ever. Thus ends the reading of this psalm. I'm just going to have a little brief drink of water before I continue here. This is a psalm that is obviously expressing worship unto God. The psalms are... Psalms that are made like a hymn to sing praise unto God. Out of the many psalms, here we are in Psalms 145, expressing worship unto God. And we see in verse 1, the King David says, I will extol thee, my God. Now, the word God, and I didn't look it up in the original, but most likely the word that is used here for God is Elohim, which has the understanding of Almighty in a plural sense, and yet in a sense that there's only one God. For it says in the word of God, Hear, O Israel, for the Lord our God is one. And it goes on to command us to worship God with our whole being, to love God with our whole being. And so, the way I like to term this word Elohim is the Almighty's one. The first use of this word is back in Genesis where God says, let us make man in our image. This is defining the plurality of God and yet that God is one. Now some would tend to conclude because we believe in the plurality of one God that in fact we believe in three gods. But let me clarify that this is the farthest from the truth. With this understanding, the understanding of God in plurality is this. We must understand it in the sense that it is the only way to comprehend or clarify with intellect as well. God is being ultimately almighty. If God did not have plurality, I will show you now that he would not be ultimately the almighty, in the sense that the ultimate aspects of existence are that which is beyond time and space, the creation which is in time and space, that's the creation realm, and the filling of all space in the creation realm and beyond it. In this sense, now, if God could not have personage, that is, consciousness and intellect, Beyond time and space, would he be God over time and space? If he could not be in personage beyond time and space, where he could see the end from the beginning, he would not be ultimately God or the Almighty. God must be in personage beyond time and space. And as such, he is known as the father because the word father means originator and has the understanding of experience over time. In other words, transcending time and space to see the end from the beginning. So God is known as the father beyond the time and space realm in government, in personage of government. Personage is necessary for government. God is not a robot or some machine. He is personage. In other words, he is the source of his own action. He doesn't get input from an outside source like a robot does or a computer does. He is totally self-originating and free in his choices as the father that sees the end from the beginning. God also has in his very core being that ultimate quality which cannot be anything less than ultimate in the way I will define it. In fact, I will define a quality that you cannot define a quality that is more greater than what I'm about to define. This is a quality of love that is in God in the way that I will define this love. For the word of God says, more than once, God is love. And the word love that's used in the Greek original scriptures of the New Testament is agape, which is the highest form of love. This is something beyond just emotional feeling. There's three forms of love in the Greek eros, which is sexual, filio, which is the soulish and the emotional, and agape, which transcends all of those. And here is the sense in which God is love and is being before I go on to describe these other three aspects of God and government. God. First of all, to have the capacity to love must be, as I said, not a robot, but totally the source of his own action, totally self-originating. But that's not all that love is. Love is a choice that in God always chooses the highest lasting good over any more immediate choice of self fulfillment. He always chooses the highest lasting good. And that is totally self-originating from his own free will. Such a quality of love is not some machine-like quality. It is self-originating. And as such has nature or quality to it. And this quality is a purity an integrity of love that is like a blazing fire of judgment that consumes and utterly destroys the slightest word, thought, or deed that would be in any way contrary to this ultimate perfection of love. God does express anger at that which is contrary to his love as a blazing fire of judgment that brings utter submission of all under his love in its integrity. This is the defensive aspect of God's being of love, known as the holiness of God. I only want to share this in brief here. I could go into great depth teaching on this. But for those that are new, I think there needs to be an understanding that this is the aspect of the being of God who is love. In its purity, its integrity, known as the holiness of God. Only such a quality can contain unlimited life and unlimited power without corruption, without loss, and is indicative that God is the very source of unlimited life and unlimited power that is contained completely in what is constructive under greater and greater Goodness, goodness being the containment of unlimited life and power without corruption in a way that is ever enlarging in greater and greater constructivity or goodness, constructivity under greater fulfillment and meaning. God is love. And as the Father, God sees the end from the beginning. And it often mentions in the scripture that he is for no one, various things. In government, as the Father, in personage. But God also is fully expressed into his creation if he could not be fully expressed into his creation and be personage within the time and space realm, such as in this world, then he would not be able to govern. He would not be able to relate to creation or to have creation focus back and worship unto him unto greater enlargement of his love. So God must be in personage within the time and space realm as such He is known as the full expression of the Father, or the Son of the Father. The word Son basically means expression. And so the Son is fully expressed into the time and space realm, fully expressing the Father. It says in Hebrews 1, verse 3, that the Son is the full expression of the Father. The word Son basically means that. And so God must also be able to govern within creation, within what he has created in the time and space realm. And then, as the Holy Spirit God is filling all space, he is attached to every particle of existence that he has created. the ultimate dimensions. God is the Father beyond time and space. God is the Son in time and space. God is the Holy Spirit filling all space. So God is in personage filling all things everywhere at the same time with the power to become a personage in more than one place at the same time in creative acts. So here is the basic understanding of one God in three persons that if he was not in three persons would not be ultimately almighty. He is known by the word Elohim which is the word God used in English here as the Almighty's one as clearly described also in Genesis when it says let us make man in our image. So I've laid a bit of a background for those that may have never been exposed or have knowledge of these things. Since this message is on the internet and goes to the far corners of the earth, I want people to know the reality of the one true God. One of the names for God is basically summed up with the word Reality or truth. There is a verse that, there's various verses that say God is truth. And I just want to explain this a little bit. If you look up the word truth in various dictionaries, it basically boils down to defining truth as that which is real. Then you look up the word reality or real and you discover that it basically means that which is is unchangeable and indestructible and everlasting. And the only quality that can be this way is this love that I've been talking about that has such integrity and purity that it will not condone the slightest that is contrary to it, but is a blazing fire of judgment against all that would, in their free will that God created them in, rebel against his love. But if that was all that God was, and he did not have the power to be transcendent in mercy and to assure forgiveness, his love would be less than ultimate. What I have just described, the holiness of God's love, is the ultimate, so to speak, for lack of a better illustration, the ultimate negative of the universe. Everything in creation, every molecule and atom, all the things in creation are created with negatives and positives that cause them to be held together or to fall apart or to repel each other and form certain reactions and and organizations of matter. So the negative symbol is a horizontal line which can represent the foundation of God's being and also that which cuts off all that is contrary to the absolute purity of his being. It contains goodness with no destructibility in it. The word of God says that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And I could go on to mention other verses. So the integrity of God's being symbolized In the negative symbol is the foundation from which there can be his creativity or the expression of his being in creativity. And so the next symbol is the positive symbol, which is the symbol of the cross. And it is evident. And again, I have to be brief on this for time. that if God could not assure forgiveness to his creation, that would imply that he was creating things without purpose. It would imply that he was less than perfect and therefore not God. It is the positive aspect that springs out of the absolute purity of his being. And that positive aspect is that God is able to assure mercy and forgiveness, that God's love is so great that those that repent and receive his atoning sacrifice can receive forgiveness. In fact, from the very time of Adam and Eve, God instituted the offering of an innocent animal as a symbol of their sin being transferred unto that animal as they placed their hand on an innocent lamb It was a symbol of their sin being placed on that innocent lamb that was killed. Representing a substitutionary sacrifice for their sin. But there are various verses, very clearly, and a particular chapter and other chapters, that very clearly make it clear that they understood that the animal did not fully represent them because it could not live a perfectly moral life, did not have a soul like their soul did, or a spirit like their spirit did. The only thing that could totally cleanse their soul and spirit, and not just their physical body, would require a perfect human being that would live a perfect righteous life in the midst of all the temptation and take judgment upon himself in their place. And they knew that could not be within an animal. They recognized clearly, and there, it says there's, there's many verses in the Bible that make it clear that only God is the source of forgiveness. Because only within the being of God is there the power, without violating the integrity of his love, is there the moral capacity of love to be so great to actually humble himself more than the mere creature and suffer more than the mere ki- creature, taking judgment upon himself and absorbing it for his creation. And yet, still maintaining oneness with God in his soul and spirit instead of losing that union. And so, God has the moral capacity to become a perfect atoning sacrifice to suffer more than the mere creature, to be humbled more than the mere creature, and yet still be righteous, and as a result, still be pure, still be holy, still be in union with God, because he is God, so that he can rise from the dead. In Romans 1, 4, it says that he rose from the dead by the spirit of holiness because when he was on the cross, that is Jesus Christ, the one and only full expression of God. Though he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He maintained his faith in God and we can see it in various prophecies of his atoning sacrifice written thousands and hundreds of years before his death as well as in what he said on the cross. He said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He trusted in God. Even when he felt the forsaking of the presence of God, his spirit, his soul was in a state of selfless trust in the Father because he is God, and therefore his soul was in a state of total purity. It did not violate the integrity of God's being of love It was in a state of total, pure trust in the character of who God is and His love. And so He rose from the dead. So many of them, I'm sure, had the revelation, and even if it was subconscious in the intellect, or subconscious in, in, in... many, I'm sure, had it even consciously, that they knew That ultimately, the moral capacity was in God to be a perfect atoning sacrifice. And so in the center of history, Christ came into the world and humbled himself more than you, a mere creature, and suffered more than you, a mere creature. Just think about that. That's so great. It's beyond our comprehension that God could have such love for his creation. And not only for his creation, but for the unity within himself of reciprocative fellowship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It says, and I can't go into all of this, it just takes too long, but it makes it very clear that there's this reciprocative fellowship within the triunity of the One True Almighty's One, the One True God. It, it's meant. It mentions it in Isaiah thirty-three five and six around there, where it's speaking of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, before he came and say, giving a prophecy and says that the fear of the Lord is his treasure. God treasures. Reverence towards the father as the son. In this sense, and the fear of God is a choice to recognize God for who who he truly is. Which is a recognition of what is ultimately trustworthy because of the quality that we are recognizing, which is this quality I'm describing of love that has such integrity and yet can be transcendent to show Mercy and the sure forgiveness to those that repent and receive God's mercy and forgiveness. So here we have a relationship with God, within God, where the Son sees the Father and He says, Father, I am so reciprocative of the glory of who you are. And I want to just explain a little bit more before I go into this. You see, it is out of the holiness of God that issues wholeness. For I just mentioned that it is only the holiness of God, that is the integrity of his love, that can contain goodness without corruption, and that would be ultimate wholeness. You see, God is reality, his name means reality. I mentioned what reality is. It's only reality that can satisfy the very core of who you are, the very core of your being. And it says, when it uses the word Yahweh or Jehovah in the Bible, that word means the self-existent one, which is another way of saying, I am the very source of reality. Another way it's described in the Bible is it says, I am that I am. God describes himself as I am that I am. In Hebrew, it is a hilya asherah I am that I am. Jesus Christ said, I am that I am. He is the very source of reality, the one true God. As the Father beyond time and space, as Jesus Christ the Son within the time and space realm, and as the Holy Spirit filling all things, which is God in omnipresence, As such, there is wholeness that comes out of the holiness of God. And out of wholeness issues beauty. The ultimate source of beauty is the I am that I am, Elohim, the Almighty's one. He is the ultimate source of reality, the ultimate source of beauty. So that the most beautiful woman or whatever it is in creation that you see that reflects the image of God only points you to an ultimate source of beauty and reality that is far greater. The very one true God who is love and loved you so much that he in his love poured out his life and his blood on the cross in Jesus Christ so that you could be cleansed and washed and made clean and white as snow, so that you could know the assurance of forgiveness. And now I want to describe this reciprocation within the triunity of the one true God. The Son beholds the beauty that issues out of the wholeness of God that he sees out of the holiness of God's being of love. And he says, Father, I love you so much that I'm filled with such thankfulness that my love wants to enlarge towards you by going into a great condescension and suffering more than the mere creature and humbling myself more than the mere creature. So that I can bring to you, Father, a corporate bride that I can express my love to you with that you can inherit. The Father says to the Son, Son, I love you so much that though it pains me to let you go, I am so filled with reciprocation of the beauty of the holiness of your being and its purity and its integrity and beauty that I allow you to go. So that you can experience being enlarged in inheriting a corporate bride that we can come together and that you can bring onto me so that we can be enlarged together in a corporate bride that we can ful- ful- be filled with in marriage that goes on forever and ever in greater enlargements of creation with this bride this corporate bride from every background, tribe and nation and tongue that will rule the universe and that will, become, um, that will form the immunity against any possible rebellion of free willed beings henceforth by the manifold wisdom that will be displayed in this unity of such individuality in such a beautiful mosaic of a corporate bride. It will go on forever and ever and ever in greater and greater enlargement. Yes, heaven can be your destiny. As John the Baptist said before Christ died on the cross, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world whose death was prophesied in detail thousands of years before and many hundreds of years before. And I could point out many of these scriptures, but I'm here to expound this Psalm today. So I want to expound it a little bit. And so in this Psalm, Psalm 145, I've laid a good foundation for those that are new. And in the first verses, there's an emphasis upon worshiping God. where this worship of God involves praising, extolling, blessing, declaring, speaking, singing. This is blessing, praising, and declaring the greatness of God. Speaking of God's majesty and the wondrous works out of the knowledge that God is a God of judgment that is slow to anger and of great mercy. That's what basically is in verses one to nine. And in here, in this passage of scripture, we see that we are to bless the name of God, which is the full expression of who God is to us. That's what it means when it's talking about the name of God. It is the expression of who God is to us. You can look it up in the Hebrew. There's a, name for the, there's a definition for the name soul, and there's a definition for the name name. And they have some similarities. The understanding of soul, if you look it up in the Old Testament Vines Dictionary, has the understanding of who one really is to themselves in their very essence of their being. The understanding of the word name is who one really is to those before them, or to creation in this case, in relation to God. And so this is basically the expression of God... To his creation. And so we are to bless who God is in his full expression to us. And we also choose to praise his name, his full expression to who he is to us, without end. That's what it says here in verses 1 to 3. It also talks a lot about greatness. So I want to just go into this word greatness a bit. It it says in these first three verses, it says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And then it says, his greatness is unsearchable in verse three. So let's just briefly look at the meaning of the word greatness. Greatness has this understanding. In the original Hebrew. Yes, we know in English what the word greatness means. Concretely, it, it, it is represented in the mighty acts of God, which are all, also very much mentioned in this psalm. But if we go into the original Language, symbolic language of the Hebrew, which goes back to 2000 BC and earlier, actually 1500 BC and earlier. This name greatness has, first of all, I think that the one, there's different variations of it. The one I think that I will point out is the root one first. It has a symbol which is the symbol of um, what looks like a foot, and that's what it means, it's a foot, but it means to gather, to walk, to carry. It has the understanding of gathering. So the first letter has the understanding of gathering. And then the next letter has the understanding of entrance. It is the symbol of the entrance to the tent door. And it means also to hang and it also can mean movement. So you've got gathering and you got entrance. Now we're just working on this to give you an understanding. And then the last symbol is the symbol of a shepherd's staff, which means to bind in the sense that you can take a sheep with a hook on the staff and, and pull its head in, to yoke, to teach. Now, Basically, this meaning has this understanding. It's a cord that is made by twisting fibers together so that it becomes larger and more numerous in the fibers. The stronger the cord will be. Anything that is large or great in size or stature. But the understanding and the way this is used, the original with this gathering symbol of the foot and then the symbol of entrance and then the symbol of the staff, which is securing that, is the understanding of something that is continually gathering and becoming greater and greater and greater. And so when I talk about God's love ever expanding that contains unlimited power in life, that is what is indeed the case. And that's why it says that God's greatness is unsearchable and you only have to consider the vastness of the universe to understand that his greatness is unsearchable. They can't even fathom or reach the end of the universe with the most powerful telescopes. And Most people know nowadays how vast and great the universe is. Light travels at the speed of seven times around the world in one second. And yet to reach the closest star takes five light years. And some of the stars are suns. Our sun is a thousand times larger than the earth. And some suns are a thousand times larger than our sun. And in our galaxy alone, there are billions of such suns. But that's just one galaxy, and now they know there are billions upon billions of galaxies that within each galaxy contain billions and billions of stars. And the word of God says that he humbles himself to behold the things that are in the heavens. So indeed, his greatness is unsearchable. Now the third heaven, which... We go to when we die as believers that have repented and received the atoning work of the one true God expressed in the fullness of who he is in his son on the cross, who rose from the dead and was strongly verified that he rose from the dead. And I might add here that there's been lawyers that have set out to try to disprove the resurrection of Christ. And in the process, there's four we know of That were converted. They were writing a book to disprove the resurrection, and knowing the principles of law and of evidence, they found the evidence overwhelming that Christ indeed, God indeed, rose from the dead. 500 witnesses saw him at one time, it says in the book of Acts. They were willing to die for this. I can't go into all the evidence there is. The fact that the soldiers were guarding the tomb, and yet the stone was rolled away. And I can't go on. But the evidence is very strong. Yes, God's greatness is unsearchable. The fact that he rose from the dead is is amazing. In fact, it says in Ephesians that because he descended from such heights in condescension, He also has risen above all creation, verifying the name of God or the expression that God is indeed God and that his greatness is unsearchable. Yes, in Jesus Christ, we have the name of God that is above every name in all principalities and powers. In fact, there's no comparison. He is the very cornerstone of government, that is without corruption, that will expand forever and ever against the tendency of corruption, which is now well known in science to be the second law of thermodynamics, which basically says this, that anything left on its own tends to go in the direction of disorder, onto complete chaos and destruction over time. And that principle was even before sin and was guarded by God in an expanding state of glory and creativity. he is the very and Without God, when left on our own, we will be filled with corruption and death. Look at all the destructive belief systems that people have been deceived to believe by false prophets and demons. Look at the fruit of it. Is that God? God is good. God is love, a love that has integrity to judge sin, but is transcendent in incredible mercy. And you can know the greatness of his mercy to you. And thus therein, the greatness of his love to you personally, when you cry from the depths of your heart in truth and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Cleanse me of all my sins as white as snow through your blood. Forgive me of all my sin. I make Jesus Christ the one true God, the I am that I am, my Lord and Savior. Yes, God's greatness is unsearchable, and that's why it says in this passage here that we are to praise him forever and ever. I'm going to go on. I can't share everything. It says we are to speak of the glorious honor of God's imposing form and appearance, which causes our soul to be set solid in our entrance of worship. I'm just interpreting the meaning of these words, and this is particularly verse five. I will speak of the glorious honor of Thy Majesty and of Thy wondrous works. We are to speak of the glorious honor of God's imposing form. That's what majesty means, imposing form and appearance, which causes our soul to be set solid in our entrance of worship, to enter greater enlargement of awe and praise in who God is, in his imposing expression of ultimate reality to us, individually and corporately. Yes. When we see the beauty of who God is, how can we not help but speak of the majesty, of the honor that issues from the majesty of what we are perceiving? Such majesty cannot be perceived from the eye of the heart unless there is a deep turning in the heart. To recognize the reality of who God is to us personally, first in His holiness, out of there and therein, the recognition of the greatness of His mercy to us because we see how undeserving we are of the mercy of God in the light of His purity of love that must judge all that is contrary to love. Our thoughts, our choices that have been in rebellion against God, we can come and receive his forgiveness and be reconciled to God and experience his spirit coming in to dwell with our soul and spirit in fellowship with God, even as the son is in fellowship with the father and the father with the son and the Holy Spirit in omnipresent with the omnipresence with the father and with the son, pointing to the son and pointing to the father. And from the very beginning, this message has been preached from the very time of Adam and Eve that there is only one God and that he has provided a way of assured forgiveness because he is holy and transcendent in that holiness with such a purity of love to become a perfect atoning sacrifice to assure forgiveness. And he's coming real soon for his corporate bride. I didn't manage to get very far in this passage of scripture today when I meditated on it because I went into the depth of some of the words that were key key words in worship. And one of them was the word greatness that I explained. And the other one is the word majesty, which I have already explained. It has the understanding of imposing form and appearance. Its word is hood. And I didn't give you what the symbolic meaning of this word is. But the first symbol is the symbol of a man with his hands raised up in the air as if to praise God or as if filled with utter awe. And the word actually means in the original, that particular symbolic letter. In the original, has the understanding of looking, revealing, breath, and sigh. In other words, you're just sighing and you're breathing because you're seeing something that is so revealing. And then the next word after that word is the symbol of a tent door. In other words, we enter before God with utter awe of who he is. This is the perception of the majesty of God. That's the root meaning of the word. It has other symbols here that, I think the the other one is the one that's the word for, specifically for the word splendor, is the symbol of that man speaking of awe, of breathing, of revelation, and then it's got a tent peg. In other words, it's pegged down. This this perception is pegged down in our soul We are so impressed by what we are seeing that it is rooting our soul in the reality of what we are seeing. And then out of that, the next one is the entrance. Speaking of the tent door, we enter in to fellowship with God when we have that right awe and fear of God that causes us to perceive God as ultimately trustworthy out of perceiving the quality of who God is, that there is nothing in him that would cause us to doubt the moment we doubt who God is because we see the consequences of suffering due to the judgment required by the holiness of God against the creation which has rebelled against him, soon as we begin to look at the suffering around us and doubt God, or like Adam and Eve, be tempted to think that we can be like God, The moment there is doubt, we are no longer having a perception of God where we perceive him as ultimately trustworthy and therefore we are not reciprocated to the being of God and we have fallen from fearing God. For the fear of God is a choice to perceive God in the fullness of the reality of who he is to the whole creation and to us personally. That is, his holiness. And the fact that his mercy can be transcendent towards us out of such holiness. And that's what's emphasized in this psalm as the context of the worship. It says in verse 9, The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. It's emphasizing his mercies. And it goes on in this passage to emphasize the mercy of God. It says in verse 8, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger. The anger speaks of the holiness of God that requires judgment towards us personally, that we deserve hell for our rebellion against God. And yet that his mercy is greater than that required judgment if we will but repent and receive it. But if we reject his love, there is nothing but everlasting torment. For we would be cut off from the very source of love, which is the very source of fulfillment in life, which means you're left with nothing less than the opposite. Those that have experienced dying and going to the other realm where God has allowed them to experience hell make it very clear that the torment and the suffering is beyond anything of the natural. It is far greater. And it goes on forever and ever. Because these beings are cut off from God, there's no water. There's no light. You're always thirsty. Your body keeps on reconstituting itself when demons tear you apart or fire burns you. The body can't be destroyed and yet it experiences being destroyed all the time and the pain of it. That's what they describe. I don't have time to go into how that can be allowed. But let, it, let me just say this. God is not the source because love is self-originating. We are the creators of our own destiny through our own choice, and without that we wouldn't have the capacity to love. We'd be like robots. But that means there's the potential for hell, and God's purpose is to bring us out of that potential into an immunization through harmonizing us with him, through being reconciled to him, through the atoning sacrifice of himself through Jesus Christ. Should God negate the being of who he is because some of their own free will chose to reject his love? Should the purpose of a house that God can inhabit of living stones with his presence or a bride that he can marry, a corporate bride, be negated because of those that chose to reject his love of their own free will when they had every opportunity to choose it? instead they hardened their heart against the love of god no god is not going to neglect deny who 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 he is he which is his love and the expression of his love to bring forth a corporate bride because of those that are like the sawdust left over from a house that was built should the sawdust that is left over be more important than the purpose which is the house nay The sufferings of this present time that we who know fellowship with God through Jesus Christ go through is not to be compared with the exceeding and eternal weight of glory, it says in the word of God. Let us always be those that worship God in spirit and truth, that reciprocate the being of who God is to us. It involves quality time, seeking God in prayer, putting God first in our lives. Oh, I could talk for a long time here. But this chapter emphasizes the importance of fearing God, and I've clarified what the fear of God is. That choice to recognize the reality of who God is in such a way from our heart that we are reciprocative to his mercy, which is the reality of who God is in his love. To us personally. It emphasizes the fear of God. It says he will fulfill the desire of them that fear him in verse 19. Because ultimately our desire is the inner core of our being. That can never be satisfied with anything less than the presence of God. As he is the very source of reality and of wholeness. Those that refuse God and have not been reconciled to God through Christ's atoning work on the cross have in their being a black hole like that which is in outer space that can never be satisfied. It was only made to be satisfied or complete in God, in the indwelling of God's spirit. And so they make choices that are destructive like a black hole that pulls things in in a destructive way onto itself. That's a black hole in outer space. The hell in their hearts makes a hell around them because they refuse to come to the knowledge of the truth. They would rather hold on to their pride and the demonized doctrines that they have fortified, whether it's the belief in an idolatrous perception of one God that cannot assure mercy, that is not perceived as good ultimately, or whether it's a polygamous God They are both equally idolatrous and a rebellion against the one true God that is anti-God, anti-existent, anti-life, destructive, and ordained to the utter judgment of God's anger. So I will forbear to continue to preach for lack of time. There is another place in this passage of scripture that points out again the fear of God I am just scanning briefly to see if I can get that one and so God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom he's filled with mercy he is the very life source, and that's how he's seen here. It says in verse 16, Thou openest thine hand and satisfy the, satisfies the desire of every living thing. It says that the Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him. See, it's not just a matter of intellectual assent. It's a matter of calling like you are drowning and you're crying from the depths of your being. I need reality. I'm thirsty for reality. I don't want anything less than the reality of the one true God. And so there's a deep call from the heart. And it says to all that call upon him in truth, God will be nigh to them. And then he fulfills the desire of such For those that truly fear him will call upon him from the depths of their being. There will be a deep heart's cry. God bless you for listening to this passage that I have shared. May it bless you. And pray for me and support me on my website at loverealized.com so that the end time move of God's spirit that I seek to enter into in cooperation with others that God is drawing me together with, I'm asking him for the connections, will come forth where unto him shall the gathering of the people be. In Jesus' name. Thank you.